there were a number of protests before, like clapping protests that people were taking to the streets. A young person just decided to, through the social networks, invite young people to the street and just clap and show... Just like this? Yes, exactly. Wow. And, you know, and show protest to the decision at that time that was made. And even then, one of the participants was arrested for clapping on the street, and he had only one hand. Wow, so a one-handed man was literally arrested at a clapping protest. Exactly. Welcome to the 16th episode of Global. I'm Sinclair Stafford. I'm Ryan Maddox. And we will be your hosts on this episode. For those of you who haven't heard before, Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. And if you're a first-time listener, go back and check out our other episodes. We cover countries dominating the headlines like Iraq and Russia, as well as lesser-known countries like Timor-Leste and the Gambia. And today we'll be looking at Belarus, a country in my wheelhouse, as your Eurasia Division co-host for the podcast episode. That's right. You must be excited. I am excited. I get to finally nerd out on a country that I know and love. So, Ryan, what are the fast facts on Belarus? So, first and foremost, Belarus is located in the northeast corridor of Europe. It's between Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, and Ukraine, making it completely landlocked. Respublika Belarus, or the Republic of Belarus, has a population of about 9.5 million, similar to the population of Hungary or the United Arab Emirates. And keep in mind that this country was decimated uh, throughout World War II. It lost about 40% of its population. In terms of religious affiliations, about half the country's citizens identify as Orthodox Christian, 7% are Catholic, and 41% are not religious. And that's due to the Soviet history, right? Exactly. It has an astoundingly high literacy rate at 98%, though most post-Soviet states have something similar, and this is due to the highly centralized government-run education system, which required all citizens to attend uh, school up to basically high school. Uh, this was a policy due to a policy called uh, Likbiez which literally translates to liquidation of illiteracy. Interesting. Also, about 40% of Belarusian terrain is covered by forest. Uh, this obviously plays a pretty large role in its economy. It is a large timber exporter throughout Europe. So what type of government does Belarus have? That's a great question, Sinclair. So Belarus's government is technically a presidential republic, although it's rarely referred to as that. You may have heard the overused line that Belarus is, quote, Europe's last dictatorship. His authoritarian style has earned him the nickname of Europe's last dictator. Belarus is known as Europe's last dictatorship. He is known as the last dictator. Often described as Europe's last dictatorship, Alexander Lukashenko presides over Europe's closest equivalent to North Korea. Port within the country sometimes called Europe's last dictatorship. A frontier between the EU and Europe's last dictatorship. In his homeland, he's known as Papa. But to many abroad, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko is known as Europe's last dictator. However cliched, the term is absolutely accurate. Well, that was fast. How about the fun facts, Ryan? Well, Sinclair, Belarus has the largest amount of wild roaming bison in Europe. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of these behemoths roamed Europe in the past, but now only about 800 are traversing the Bieloveskaya Pustja, which is a national park in western Belarus. Well, I'm glad you're saying that because I certainly can't. So what else about Belarus? Also, Belarus has a pretty dynamic IT and tech industry. It's actually been dubbed the Silicon Valley of Eastern Europe oh, wow. by some 
by some folks. An example of this is that Belarusian tech companies are the origin to the popular mobile app Viber and the popular video game slash mobile game World of Tanks. Oh yeah, I see those ads all the time. It always makes you think they're a movie and then like a it's great just like, movie about tanks coming yeah, out, but no. But it's just a video game. And you literally just point your little trajectory piece up and try to hit your opponent. So I've heard. Yeah, you're not a big video game player, are you? No, of course not. I read. You've got many better things to do. Oh, no, I'm far too busy listening to podcasts. (laughs) Moving on. There are also a lot of interesting facts about Belarus that are unfortunately pretty sad. Belarus was hit by about 70% of the total nuclear fallout from Ukraine's Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Because of wind patterns and proximity to the site, much of southeastern Belarus is uninhabitable to this day. This was also our hint at the end of the last episode, if you were listening all the way to the end. Shout out to our loyal listeners. And the radioactive chemical, cesium-137, has a half-life of about 30 years. So Belarus has recently just passed the 30-year anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster. And now it will be another 30 years before 50% of that remaining shrinks to 25% and so on. So basically, this radiation will affect the country for an extremely long time. No, that's terrible. And it actually affects the culture. They are very savvy and and friendly, eco-friendly. Oh, cool. Awesome, Ryan. So I think we've got a great list of guests for this episode. I'm not an expert, but... Sinclair, I can't lie. I saw the list. I was freaking out. As a Eurasia follower, I am so excited to hear from these guests. Uh, Could you introduce our first one? Sure. So our first guest is Anna Konopatskaya. She is a current Belarusian member of parliament, and not only is she one of the few women MPs in the country, but she's actually the only opposition member of the entire House of Representatives. Thank you for, for your interest in my job and in my country. Next, we have Ambassador Ken Yalowitz. He was ambassador to Belarus from 1994 to 1997, and he was also ambassador to Georgia from 1998 to 2001. He's currently the director of the Conflict Resolution Program at Georgetown University. Happy to be here, and thank you. Uh, It's always uh, interesting to me to talk about uh, Belarus. I spent three very interesting but difficult years as the U.S. ambassador to Belarus. Uh, and then lastly, we have IRI's own Rita Vaisuliene. She's the program director for IRI's Belarus program, and she's based in Lithuania. She's been with IRI since 1997 and has worked on our Belarus program for 17 years. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. They gave you all the hard names, Sinclair. I know. That's <laughs> it's all right. a test. I'm excited, though. I'm glad that we're, we're spreading the culture. Yeah, totally. And I can language. now pronounce Belarusian things. Exactly. Okay, let's get started. Bye-bye. Ambassador, if we could give you the impossible task of summarizing Belarusian history in three minutes or less, where would you start? It's difficult. I think probably the things that I would emphasize is that Belarus really has just a short history as a nation state. Uh, it's an area in between, and it's been, you know, part of empires, a large Lithuanian empire, Polish, then it was part of the, you know, Russia, the Russian empire, and then became, of course, part of the Soviet Union. Uh, and really, independence, you know, when you look at it, uh, you have to look back to 1991 when the Soviet Union uh, broke up. So I think the fact of, you know, sort of little experience in, you know, as a nation state, you know, has a great deal to to do with the fact that, you know, that the Belarusian language, um, you know, is, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of is and it isn't the official language. Most people speak Russian. Uh, there's still a strong uh, looking um, eastward to Russia uh, and, you know, still a, a, a weakly developed sense of nationhood, although that is changing. Uh, so just to clarify, it's Belarusian and not Belarusian, right? Definitely. There is a Bela, uh, Belarusian language in the country is Belarus. 
And uh, uh, that is something, you know, that uh, the Russians, you know, for a long time basically said that Belarus, you know, really they're the Belarusians were just little brothers, that there is no Belarusian language, that Belarusian is simply a, you know, a dialect of Russian, not so. There is a Belarusian language with literature and from fine literature, and uh, it's not a Belarus. It's not Belarusian. It's Belarus. Anna, could you tell us about some historical events that shaped a Belarusian citizen psyche? Of course, it's a great patriotic war. We fight against uh, Germany, and it was together with the other country, and it was the Soviet Union. And do you know that in my country, in Belarus, uh, Belarus lost every four person from and just now we have only 10 million population. If we can talk about last uh, historical events, for example, it was first uh, president election and this was just now we have only one president for 22 years. Since 1994. Yes, but for me, I didn't take part in this election because I was uh, young, but uh, I remember that I believe in future, I believe in democratic I believed in democratic Belarus, and I believed in I believe in human rights, and I thought that it will be very good to open for Europe, for open for 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 world. Rita, could you tell us a little bit about Belarus's transition from the Soviet Republic that it was to an independent country? What happened? The map of Eastern Europe drastically changed in December of 91 when the leaders of three countries, Belarus, Ukraine, and um, Russia, decided to dissolve the Soviet Union. And it actually happened in Belarus, in Belavezha Pusha, where the three leaders signed a dissolvement agreement. And from that moment, independent Belarus, as other 14 Soviet republics appeared. So the fall of the Soviet Union technically occurred in Belarus. Yes, in Belarus, Pusha, the dissolvement agreement was signed in Belarus. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, and, and then Belarus once was an independent state already with everything, you know, and but just for a very short period of time. And that's why it was always used to be like economically, culturally more connected to Russia. And it stayed that way. So the transition happened that other countries went more Western direction. Belarus always stayed in the influence of Russia connected by language, by economy, by culture, by everything else, more than any other country, probably. In other Soviet states, we saw something that people classify as the wild 90s. Uh, What happened in Belarus? Belarus is well known as a stability country and stable country, so they actually... I would take it as an observer of all the events in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia when that was wild. Tanks rolled in. And, you know, we have our singing revolutions, which never was the case in Belarus. They stayed stable at that time in the sense of the word, you know, if you can think of the 90s. There was no such chaos as in other countries, like blockades and everything. So they kind of survival mood and they survived. And that's what brought in... Lukashenko right into power. So yes, it was like you know, in the if if going back to your question about being wild, the corruption went wild because everything you know collapsed and people tried to get whatever they could get from the situation. So corruption went through the roof, and Lukashenko came from a small village in Mogilov region, Shklov, where he was the head of the collective farm, and decided to fight corruption. He voted against independence when he had a chance, you know, and he decided now to take it in his hands and people were tired of corruption. So that was his main message. He got support and was elected in 94. 
and he is in charge of the country and rules the country as i probably would say as a collective farm till these days really quick what do you mean like that you said belarus is run like a collective farm everything is in one hands concentrated in one hand he decides everything people don't have a say during elections because lukashenko decides everything by his decrees by his laws by appointing people to the parliament not electing not like popular vote from top down from the local governments to the to the parliament of the republic everyone is appointed none of the elections in belarus were recognized as free and democratic by OSCE and other international organizations so he holds the power in his hands and he's responsible for all developments of of the country and how about the economy the 70% of all the enterprises is still state owned privatization process hasn't really started yet so he controls that as well Ambassador, so since you've had the opportunity to meet with Mr. Lukashenko a few times, could you tell us what he's like in person? Sure. Of course, I haven't seen him in, you know, about 20 years, but he's a very strong person. He's not much taller than I am. He's probably 6'1", 6'2". But he has broad shoulders and very, very strong hands. I was told that uh, he could be very, very physical, that if people, you know, didn't follow his orders, sometimes there were physical, uh, you know, retributions that he doled out. And I heard the same, you know, from his staff people. Now, whether he's graduated from that now, you know, I don't know. But as I said, he's a very physically, you know, imposing person. And uh, when I used to meet with him, what always struck me was that he just seemed uncomfortable, um, you know, with, uh, with Western diplomats. Uh, he very rarely looked at you, you know, directly. Uh, he, his eyes tended to sort of wander around the room, and it kind of betrayed to me sort of a feeling of discomfort, uh, that he was never really very comfortable, you know, talking uh, to, uh, you know, to foreign diplomats. As an orator, it was very interesting. Um, I've watched him speak publicly, and I've watched him on television enough times that he kind of speaks the language of the peasants, you know, of the sort of everyday person. He had, uh, you know, a certain sort of um, native cunning and intelligence. I never downplayed, um, you know, him. Some people thought that he was just sort of a crude, you know, uh, you know, untutored, uh, you know, backwoodsman. He was not terribly well-educated, but the man is not stupid. Believe me, he was politically very astute. He wouldn't have survived, you know, this long. I think what he wants more than anything else is to be accepted as a statesman, as a leader. That underlies, you know, the fact that he, he offered Minsk to be the place where the negotiations on Ukraine, you know, have taken place. Uh, I think personal acceptance for him is crucial. Uh, we saw that very, very, very much, that he wants respect. Respect. Uh, and I think he craves it. And uh, uh, the fact that, you know, he doesn't fully get it because of, you know, the various political things, you know, that he does internally, you know, I think, I think bothers him. But he loves when he can travel, you know, abroad and be treated, you know, as Mr. President. Now, backtracking a bit to the wild 90s, when yeah. you were <laughs> ambassador to Belarus uh, from 94 to 97, were there some major events during your tenure or stories you'd like oh, to tell? Oh, yes. Many, many, many of them. Uh, and a lot of them, frankly, were not pleasant. Um, 
my job, you know, was to try to promote Belarusian, you know, sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity, uh, but also to try to help promote, you know, human rights and respect for uh, civil liberties. And that was not, you know, the path that Mr. Lukashenko took. Uh, very shortly after I arrived, he really began a process very similar to what you know you've seen with Putin in Russia. It's almost an identical playbook, and the same thing with which Mr. Orban is doing in Hungary. It's all out of the sort of the well-known KGB playbook of you know of you know stamping out uh, opposition, you know strangling you know any independent political organizations, uh, etc. And I had a number of you know of. Uh, let, let's just say very interesting discussions and interactions, you know, with him. Probably one that I remember very, very well. I think it was 1996. The Belarusians. Uh, I was in Washington on consultations, and the Belarus uh, military shot down an unarmed uh, air balloon which had drifted uh, into Belarusian airspace. There were three people killed. I believe two Americans and one Australian, if I remember correctly. But I was not in Belarus when it happened. But I was very cognizant that this was a very serious, you know, blow. Uh, you know, we had recognized Belarus. We considered it a friendly country, and this was a very unfriendly act. And in the days that I was in Washington, uh, there was no formal apology. There was nothing. Well, I got back to Belarus quickly. I returned quickly because of this. And, you know, the first thing I would have wanted to do was to see Mr. Lukashenko. Very hard, though. It was hard to get to see him. He was not comfortable, you know, dealing with Western diplomats. Uh, but to make a long story short, it just so happened that we had the first and only delegation of potential American investors. It was a trade delegation that came to Belarus. And Lukashenko hosted sort of a round table for them in one of the government guest houses. And there was a huge rectangular table. He sat at the head of it with a bank of microphones. I sat on one side with my embassy staff members and the members of the American trade delegation, you know, on one side. Opposite us were members of the Belarusian government, and at the other end were Belarusian correspondents. No foreign correspondents, obviously, but Belarusian. Anyway, Lukashenko made a very nice talk about, you know, welcoming the Americans and how wonderful it was and hoping for the expansion of trade relations. And then he said, I'd now like to ask the American ambassador, you know, to speak. And I had to make an instant decision because, you know, we had this terrible problem hanging over our heads. So I started speaking and, you know, talking about my, our desire, you know, for improved relationships. And then I said, but I've just returned from Washington and there is great consternation and puzzlement uh, over the actions of your military, you know, shooting down this unarmed balloon. That's a Cold War act. I said, We're, the Cold War is over. We in Washington cannot understand this. There's been no apology, no offer of restitution. And I can tell you, Mr. President, that unless this issue is dealt with, uh, our relationship is going to suffer. Well, I kept hearing this noise. <sighs> And my deputy turned to me and he said, I think Mr. Lukashenko is getting rather excited. And I looked up and he, you know, was sitting there almost like with clenched fists. And he was saying, 
well, if the American ambassador wish, wishes to use this opportunity, you know, to promote trade, to raise unrelated political issues, then I have a whole series of things to raise, too. And then I noticed one of his aides came up to him and obviously whispered that this was now going on on national television, and it might not be that good, you know, to continue this kind of a debate. So he kind of glared at me, and he basically said, well, that's all, or, you know, he just kind of ended it, and he walked out. Well, his staff people came up to me afterward, and they said, no one's ever talked to him like that. I said, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So I went home, and I told my wife, I said, we may have to pack our bags. I said, I may get PNG, you know, declared persona non grata. Well, there was a reception that evening, and I pulled up with my driver, and all of a sudden, my door opened up, but my driver was still in the car, and I kept thinking, what's going on here? Because usually my driver would, and I opened up the door, and there was Lukashenko standing there, and he said to me, this is, we were all speaking in Russian, he said, oh, Mr. Ambassador, he said, um, I know why you did that. He said, I like you Americans. You're very blunt. You're very direct. You're frank. Not unlike these Russians, you know, who lie to me and, you know, are very, uh, you know, un uncanny in dealing with me. Well, the rest of the evening, he kept feeding me hors d'oeuvres and vodka. I remember I went home after that and I just said, this is Belarus, you know, you never know. You know, I, I, the last meeting I had with him, I said, Mr. President, I said, you have a choice. I said, you can be known as the father of your country, or Belarus can be known as a living museum of the former Soviet Union. The choice is yours. So, Rita, how did Lukashenko consolidate power? He came to power in 1994. After a year, in 95, he organized a four-question referendum together with the parliamentary elections where he asked for questions. One of the issues was a possibility of giving the Russian language equal status with the Belarusian, whether new national symbols should be adopted, and whether there should be economic integration with Russia, and changes to the constitution that would allow early elections if parliamentary systematically violated the constitution. In 2005, he had another referendum where he took off the limits of the terms for being elected as a president so he could stay in power forever. You mentioned that they don't they didn't have much of a national identity at that at that point ambassador but do you think that they've developed one? So it's a very good question Sinclair. I would have to say that uh President Lukashenko was rather ambivalent about uh, Belarusian national identity. But I say for the first, you know, many years of Belarusian independence under Lukashenko, um, you know, he talked a great deal about, you know, union with Russia, uh, you know, forming a, a joint state. Uh, he was always talking about the tragedy of the breakup of the Soviet Union, something like um, Mr. Putin. But what has, I think, changed things, you know, he, you know, decimated the opposition, you know, politically. Uh, he did everything, you know, to undermine a free press, independent political parties, the parliament. But he was also clever in the sense of not totally, not making it a total authoritarian or totalitarian dictatorship. He left a little bit of room, you know, for some opposition, some opposition political outlets, uh, so that he could always say, see, you know, there is an opposition. Uh, but, you know, I think his heart, you know, was really very much 
looking, you know, eastward uh, to Russia. And there were rumors at times that what his hopes were, um, you know, that he wanted to become, you know, sort of president of Russia uh, and sort of take over a combined Russia-Belarus union. Of course, the Russians had other ideas about that. You know, the system, you know, it's not quite as bad as before. When I was there, uh, there were members of the opposition who just simply physically disappeared. I went to see the Minister of the Interior, who was known to be a sort of a moderate, slight reformer and an independent thinker. I'll never forget, I went to see him at noon, and we chatted, and at one o'clock I was told that uh, they came into his office, sealed it, threw him out, and he later just physically disappeared. Zakharenka, I remember that very well. That was Belarus. It was not an easy time. So, Ambassador, what have been some of the most important events in the last three or four years? I think in many ways the major event is uh, the events of Ukraine. You know, it was very interesting when the 2008 war happened between Russia and Georgia. Uh, Belarus, as close as they were to Russia, they did not recognize, you know, the fact that uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, the two separatist regions of Georgia, were now independent countries. So that was the first signal, you know, that Lukashenko was concerned about, you know, Russian territorial uh, possibilities vis-a-vis Belarus. But even more so when, uh, you know, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea and then, you know, went into, invaded uh, into eastern uh, in, in eastern Ukraine, Lukashenko was very, very, uh, uh, you know, a sort of neutral in that he did not endorse, you know, blatantly what the Russians had done. And he made it very clear, you know, that the Belarusians would fight back, you know, if, uh, if Russia tried to do that uh, in Belarus. So what became very interesting is someone who was sort of mildly nationalistic before, now became the strong defender of Belarusian national independence, also the language. And uh, that didn't change his domestic leadership, which was still very authoritarian. But he now became a much stronger supporter of Belarusian national independence, and that was one of the real ironies, you know, of what happened, uh, you know, in uh, you know in, in in Ukraine. So, Anna, could you tell us a little bit about how uh, Lukashenko's administration sort of teeters between the West and Russia? We have a lot of groups. First group support relationship with Russia and try to deep to be more closely relationship with government. The second group, addition relationship in the, with the European Union, and uh, the, the third group in our government, uh, they prefer to, to have status quo, like today, because they have, uh, they have possibility to, to take money from budget, from republic but from republic's budget and for them it, everything is okay and sometimes i i, I can see that uh, this group uh, which uh, which are interested in uh, closely russian uh, uh, relationship with russia more stronger than others because they they also try to to, to have money from this Relationship. So, Rita, we saw a large protest last year. What was that all about? The government issued an unemployment tax law where they wanted unemployed people to pay for being unemployed. And we all know that there is a high level of unemployment in Belarus. So even if people want to work, they can't find a job. 
and the government is making them pay. Even though they have no money. <laughs> yes, they are, they are unemployment. They haven't money. In your country, in European country, government pay unemployment. But in our country, in Belarus, when you are employment, you must pay tax. And it tax cost uh, about $200. Wow. Yes. I was first an alone MP who said it's anti-constitution because we must, we must help these people. Government, president, house representative, we must help these people to find job, to pay them unemployment uh, uh, salary, for example. So, Rita, what happened next? So, people self-organized. It wasn't the opposition in particular or somebody else that organized them. They just organized themselves through social networks and expressed their unhappiness, taking to the streets. And the major protest was dissolved back in March of 2017. The government got scared of people getting angry. And this was also not typical for Belarus, because usually when they are facing hardships, people just go back to their dachas and plant more potatoes to survive as long as they need. Mm -hmm. Instead of having such a large voice against yes. them. Yeah. Why is that? Why is a Belarusian's appetite for political participation so low? Because it's been so many years that they did not have a say in how they live. They vote, but their votes don't count. So they don't believe that by voting for their representatives, their life could change. So there's a huge apathy in the country. They don't believe that anyone can change anything and that nothing depends on them. So, Rita, of the very little political will that is in Belarus, what kind of forms does that take? From time to time, people decide to express their opinion and their protest to what government is up to. And they take to the streets and they try to protest. And there were a number of protests before, like non-political ones, where the citizens just got angry with the decisions of the government, like um, clapping protests that people were taking to the street. A young person just decided through the social networks, invite people to the street and just clap and show... Just like this? Yes, exactly. Wow. And, you know, and show protests to the decision at that time that was made. So what was that protest about? It was about the Independence Day protest that people were asked to clap just for the military. So they were ticked off and that's how it started. People started going to the streets, just clapping. And even then, one of the participants was arrested for clapping on the street, and he had only one hand. So that's how ridiculous sometimes the government is dealing with the people. Wow, so a one-handed man was literally arrested at a clapping protest. Exactly. That's totally ridiculous. So could you tell us about Belarus's apparent government structure? We know that we've just heard Lukashenko's, you know, kind of a, a dictator, obviously, and very autocratic. What are the what are the other institutions in, in Belarus's government? Well, if if you look from official point of view, institutions are all there. They have the ministries, they have the parliament, they have the ministries, they have the government. Everything is there. It's just the way they rule the country. Everything, as I mentioned before, depends on one person, and that brings like mistrust of people. They feel like they are not deciding anything, they're not electing their representatives, nothing depends on them. They don't have a, a say in the development of the country, but the institutions, formal ones, are there. So, Rita, what is the state of 
political opposition in the country? They do exist. They are trying to fight for a better future of their country. We work with more than 11 organi- political organizations, you know, who try very hard every day to go to people, talk to them, explain the reality, gain their trust. And as a result, one of MPs is in a position now that can clearly fight for their rights and help them to fight for a better future. So, Anna, you became a mother in the 2000s, 1990s. You had the the law background. And then what happened in 2010 that made you jump into civil society? Of course, I, uh, I came in the United Civil Party and uh, see, guys, do see, we have a terrible situation in Belarus. Try to do something. They say, okay, do you want to take part in ele- election? Yes, I want. Anna, do you understand? It's be, it can be very dangerous. Oh, I, how? <laughs> and um, really, uh, parliamentary election it was not uh, so dangerous. But after two years in two hundred fourteen, I took part in local election, and it was really dangerous because I was arrested. I was in prison. Wow! <laughs> yes, yes. No, of course, it was a short time, two days, but it's really, it was terrible. Do you also, Ambassador, tell us about the recent Belarusian elections? Well, they're, you know, they're no different. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've seen, you know, what's happened to elections in that country. I witnessed, you know, election after election after election. And all you have to do is look at, you know, the Putin presidential election, you know, just to see what the model is. Um, you know, you allow a limited amount of opposition, a limited amount of access, you know, to the press, uh, but basically you control 95%. He is, you know, in, in, in Russian terms, Nastoyashchi Sovietsky Chelovyak, which means a genuine, you know, Soviet person. He's the kind of person, you know, that they were trying to create when the Soviet Union, you know, existed. Someone who was completely, you know, committed to that, um, you know, kind of thought process. There's no Communist Party anymore, but, you know, the whole uh, playbook of control is still very much, you know, one of the former Soviet Union. That must have had a huge impact on the youth, only growing up with one president. I, I, I'm seeing, though, that in, in Minsk, uh, that there are lots of young people there. They have, the Belarusian population is well-educated, uh, and the young people are very bright. Uh, a number of them have gone into sort of computer-related fields, um, you know, because it's kind of apolitical and they can pursue, you know, their business interests. And they are very competitive, as I understand it, you know, in that area. Uh, but, you know, uh, the major, you know, the European Humanities University, which was in Belarus, sort of a Belarusian national university, was thrown out of Belarus. They had to go to, you know, Lithuania uh, to operate. So, um, you know, there is that loss, you know, that, that you know, the, the young people don't have that opportunity really to examine their roots. And Belarus does have a history. I mean, it has a language, it has its literature, it has its heroes. Uh, and these young people, I'm afraid, you know, don't get the opportunity completely. You know, Belarusian, I'm sure, is taught in schools, but you know, you know, Russia is still the lingua franca, you know, in you know, in that country. And it is a shame, you know, that young people have grown up just knowing uh, Lukashenko, not having the opportunity, you know, for free expression, uh, you know, for independent, you know, political activity. Um, and that's why a lot of them end up leaving the country. Rita, what is Belarus's foreign policy like? What are their goals? What do they want? 
my answer probably would be straightforward. I don't see any. They go with the flow wherever they can get best deal. If Russia would be giving them more means to survive, they go to Russia. From time to time, they switch to European Union and try to get their supportive monies there. They treat neighboring countries just as friendly neighbors, but Ukraine could be a threat to their stability. I think they're trying to show Belarusian nation that look what happened, the Maidan, and people struggling now with their lives. And we definitely don't want that. We want stability. So they're kind of scaring Belarusians from having a protest, like a bigger protest. Baltic countries, are they just friendly neighbors? From time to time, they say that it's too expensive to live there. You don't want you. So also serve as a scaring out a little bit tool. Yeah. You're, it, it sounds like the government is basically using foreign policy as a, a tool to kind of keep keep their citizens scared saying like what if revolution happens here you'll be in danger what if you know eu comes you won't be able to afford food absolutely so uh, ambassador what do you think are the greatest challenges for belarus in the next five or ten years oh, uh, to me there are two of them uh, the most important probably is their economy um, you know, their economy is still, in many ways, a Soviet-type economy. Lots of state-owned industries. Um, you know, reforms there have not been deep and thorough uh, at all. In fact, the Russians used to criticize Belarus, you know, for not being more reformist. Uh, and I think that is, you know, certainly going to be a problem. Uh, up until recently, and that probably still is the case, they were really dependent on Russian economic support in the form of uh, cheap oil or cheap gas. And the Russians are getting, you know, tougher you know, undoing these things. Uh, so, you know, I think the uh, Belarusian economy, a lot of their uh, export earnings are taking crude oil from Russia, refining it, and then selling it, you know, at a good profit. And that is a tenuous, you know, type of, you know, existence. So I think the economy, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to reform it, open up to more private enterprise, they've done some of that. Uh, but the question is, you know, are they going to modernize in a way that the economy, you know, can really uh, perform? Um, you know, the European Union, uh, they're very limited in terms of what they can do with the European Union because the European Union, for these various agreements that they have, they want political change and you know, they want to see reforms in Belarus you know, is unwilling to do that. So it's kind of a dance, you know, that he has played over the years, you know, between trying to get stuff out of the European Union, but not willing to do what they want. And on the other hand, you know, having a tougher relationship economically with Russia, because the Russians are wanting to get paid now. So I think, you know, negotiating that balance is going to be, you know, problem number one. And what's the second thing? And problem number two, of course, is politically uh, he's been president, you know, for 25 years. And, you know, you just question, you know, how a one-man system, uh, you know, how that can go on. Uh, you know, there's no succession, you know, set up. You know, he's he's not an old man, but he's getting older. 
And, uh, you know, the succession issue, you know, has yet to be, you know, to be dealt with. He's grooming his sons, but they're kids, at least one of them. And I think also the question of, you know, how long this kind of creaky political system, you know, can last. We talked about the younger generation, you know, uh, wanting, you know, to be uh, freer, you know, to pursue business, to, you know, to have greater opportunities. You know, whether this will, you know, impact on the regime, as long as he can control the police and the military, you know, he'll stay in power, but you never know. Uh, you simply, you know, don't know. And I'm sure he watches that every day. Uh, anything could possibly happen. So succession and whether or not this type of system can continue, I don't know. In his favor, uh, if you look at Europe right now, uh, you look at China, you look at Russia, you look at Hungary, you look at Poland, you know, the authoritarian strain is getting stronger and the you know, democracy uh, uh, push, you know, is at least for the time being, you know, a bit attenuated. But I'm a great believer, you know, in democracy, and I think it is, it will change. And what happens to Mr. Lukashenko when that happens, I don't know. Well, um, we have this one question left. Uh, that's kind of more a lighthearted one. Um, if an international time capsule was shot off into deep space, what one physical item would you put in it to represent Belarus? A picture of Lukashenko. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, we his poster was all over the place, and uh, you know, if anything, you know, sort of uh, identifies, you know, Belarus, and they've been independent now into the twenty seventh year. And he's been president, you know, for 24 and probably will be president for as long as he wants. Uh, you know, you would have to have a um, either a button or a picture of him or something uh, because he really, you know, does embody uh, Belarus. Whether it's going to be the future, I don't know. But certainly, you know, five years from now, chances are probable that it will be. But as I indicated before, you never know. Mm -hmm. But he really is the story, I think, when you look at Belarus. What do you think our listeners should remember if they could only remember three things about this episode? Well, first, even though Belarus was the physical location of the dissolution of the Soviet Union via the Belavezhia Accords, its government and culture closely resemble its former Soviet makeup, and it really hasn't transitioned into a non-Soviet state. That's right, Ryan. Um, and along those lines, I think that the second thing would be that the eponym Europe's last dictatorship is has become a little bit cliche, but Belarus is an authoritarian country in the center of Europe uh, where people are still thrown into jail for clapping or peacefully expressing their opinion. And last, I'd say there are brave people in the opposition who are fighting for a better future of the country and they need to be supported. Speaking of brave people in the opposition, we're very grateful to Member of Parliament Anna Konopatskaya. The passion that she showed for her country and, our, and the dialogue we had here was just overwhelming and it was so so great to see. Agreed and many thanks to Ambassador Yalowitz for sharing some great stories from his time as ambassador. If there are any undergraduate students out there listening that maybe hope to be an ambassador themselves one day, check out his conflict resolution program at Georgetown University. And a big achu or Lithuanian thank you to Rita Vaisuliene, IRI's own resident program director in Lithuania. It was so great to hear from her and her amazing stories of her work in Belarus and she's always a pleasure to work with. Rano, 
some amazing, but maybe a little bizarre Belarusian music on today's episode. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast in the way to Eastern European club, I think you're doing it right, That's actually. Right. <laughs> Including, as always, the National Anthem of Belarus, as well as Bielovishkaya Forest by V.E.A. Pesniari, NRM by Three Turtles, or Tri Charapachi, and Rano Rano by Shuma. And our theme music was composed by Alex Hollinghead. Despite this really cheerful music, uh, we do actually have to end this on a sadder note. Ryan is leaving us. That's right, Sinclair. This is my last podcast episode as host. So we're recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone of you would like to join, yeah. contact Chris This is Morgan. your chance. Yeah. I'm really sad to be losing him, but he's going off to a great opportunity in the in the government. So Yeah, I'm going to miss hearing myself on, on long rides. <laughs> 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 it's not narcissistic at all. <laughs> It was only a short time that I was a host on the podcast, but I was able to work with you, Sinclair, and JT, and Chessie, and uh, really pro- produce some great, great episodes. And, I mean, come on, I'm looking over here at my editor, and he's crying up a little bit, tearing up. <laughs> Getting this too. He's such a great guy, Chris Comer. He's also a producer. Shout out. global or if this podcast has helped open your eyes to a corner of the earth you really didn't know a lot about previously why don't you share that gift and give us a rating in itunes it really does help new people find our show if there's a country you'd like to hear about tweet at us at iri global or send us an email at podcast at iri.org that's it for today's episode until next time enjoy these techno beats So for our loyal listeners who have made it this far, we are rewarding you with a little piece of trivia, a little hint at the next episode. Sinclair, do you have that for us? Yeah. Most of the world's cinnamon comes from this country, which was formerly known as Ceylon. And don't Google it. Don't ask Jeeves. You can ask <laughs> Don't your, Yahoo it. Don't Yahoo. Don't MSN it. <laughs> you can log on to AIM, though, and ask your friends. I think that would you be good. You can't, actually. They just continued it. Do, do, do. Oh, crap. You're right. <laughs> I am away. <laughs> Permanently. You can call your local librarian app and look it up for you, but you can't Google it. No Googling.